Good morning and happy new year. It's great to be with you today. We are so glad that each of you are here with us. If you consider yourself a visitor this morning, we just want to say welcome. And we are so glad that you are in the audience today visiting. I hope that you found yourself at home today and that you're comfortable and that you've enjoyed the service thus far. Today marks our first church service of 2022. Last year, we saw great growth here at La Prada Drive Church of Christ, not just in our numbers, but in our spiritual maturity. I trust that 2022 will be no different. Folks, this year, let's commit ourselves to that same growth, to continuing to open up our Bibles every day, continuing to devote ourselves to prayer and devote ourselves to the service of each other and to Christ. Let's continue to gain more ground in the community by sharing the gospel with those around us. 2022 is going to be a great year, and if you're a member here this morning, we are so glad that you're a part of our family, and we are certainly glad to have all the visitors in the audience this morning. This morning, we are going to be talking about the unknown God, and we'll be taking a look at Acts chapter 17 and that famous sermon that the Apostle Paul preached there on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. It's my hope that this message can kind of stand as a foundation for us as we move into the new year. A foundation of why we believe what we believe. If you're a Christian this morning, then you know that there is a Creator. And because that Creator loves us, He has set forth standards of morality and good and evil so that we might know what is good and so that we might know what is righteous and seek after it. That's why He sent His Son to the earth to redeem His creation and to save it and to show us truly what is good and perfect. And because of God's love for us, We know that life is inherently valuable. Folks, because of God's love for us, we know that your life has meaning. But you know, the world can't necessarily say that, can they? You know, from a secular, atheistic perspective, does human life have inherent value? You know, if we're just all cosmic accidents and products of time and chance and evolution, is there any objective standards of morality and truth? Is things like murder and stealing and taking advantage of others, is that objectively wrong? Well, of course it is. We all know that. It's written on our hearts. But the question is why? Why do we all understand the difference between good and evil? When we're out in the world and we see an injustice take place, how is it that we can all recognize that it's injustice? Have you noticed how focused our society is right now on rectifying discrimination? and making such a huge push in the area of social justice? Well, it's because we all know deep down that there are inequities out in the world. People are put upon. Life is not fair. And we can all recognize evil because we all know that there are objective standards of goodness, of righteousness, of love. And the reason we can recognize those things is because we are made in God's image. We have a Creator who loves us and designed us this way. The unknown God. Now to start out today, I'd like to pick up where we left off. If you remember the last time I spoke to you on a Sunday morning, you might remember I asked you the question, are you more noble? We read through the first half of Acts chapter 17 where we focused on Paul's second missionary journey and his trips through Thessalonica and Berea. And just to give you a quick recap, our story starts in Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas have been working in the city of Antioch, teaching and preaching the Word. And I'll show you on the reference... Uh, on the map, just for your reference, all of Paul's missionary journey started in the same spot, the city of Antioch. 
Paul goes up the coast over to his hometown of Tarsus. This is where Paul grew up. It's where he was taught the law and the prophets. He then goes over to Derby and Lystra. Now, you might remember, Paul has a young man traveling with him on this journey. His name is Silas. And here at Derby and Lystra, they actually picked up another young man named Timothy. Timothy has been ordained as an evangelist now. You know, much like the first century church in these ancient cities, we too are going to have an evangelist come to town here pretty soon. Brother Sean Zebach is going to be holding a weekend meeting here on February 4th. And I just tell you that to remind you of it and make sure you invite people. Invite your friends, invite your loved ones, invite your co-workers. The weekend of February 4th. Sean Zebach is the evangelist that I traveled with coming out of high school. He's a great speaker. He is a rancher up in uh, West Texas, has a lot of cattle. And I would encourage you to invite as many people as you can to be here that weekend of February 4th. So we have Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Okay, they're traveling. Some even say that Luke was with them for part of this journey. They continue on to Iconium over to Antioch. And by the way, there's another Antioch right over here. At this point, Paul has to make a decision. Are they going to go left or right? Guided by the Holy Spirit, they continue on to a place called Troas. Now something happens here at Troas. Paul receives a vision in the night asking them to come over and assist the people in Macedonia. Ethan led that song this morning, Send the Light. It talks about that Macedonian call. So he receives this call. They go over, cross over the Aegean Sea, land in Samothracia, over to Neapolis, and inward to the city of Philippi. A lot takes place here at Philippi. I would encourage you in your free time, read through Acts 15, 16, 17. Hear all these stories. There's a ton of great information that is very important to our faith there. So they go on from Philippi to Amphipolis, to Apollonia, and then to the city of Thessalonica. That's where we focused our time last time I spoke to you, Acts chapter 17. You might remember it was Paul's custom, whenever he would arrive in a new town, he would go first into that Jewish synagogue, and he would deliver the gospel to them. Well, the Jews there in Thessalonica, they didn't take too kindly to that. And as the text says, those Jews joined themselves to a band of wicked men and caused an uproar throughout the whole city, and they ran Paul out of town. So next, Paul comes to a place known as Berea. And you might remember in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, speaking of the Bereans, the passage says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why were the Berean Jews more noble than the Thessalonican Jews? Well, there's two reasons given. One, <clears throat> the text says that they readily received the word with eagerness. You know, they wanted to hear it. They were hungry for it. But secondly, and this is probably more important, they examined the Scriptures daily to prove whether or not what Paul was saying was true. It's kind of a novel concept in our world today. You mean they actually took what their preacher said and fact-checked their preachers and took it home and studied it out further in their Scriptures? That's exactly what they did. And that's what we should do as Christians too. Fact-check our preachers. Fact-check what you hear from this pulpit. The Jews in Thessalonica, though, they didn't care for that too much. In fact, they weren't just satisfied with running him out of their city. They have now traveled down to Berea as well. So, Paul gets run out of town once again. But this time, he leaves Timothy and Silas there with the Berean church to work there with the believers. And now Paul travels down to the city of Athens. And that brings us to the story that we're going to be taking a look at this morning. The city of Athens was the heart of the Roman Empire. Greek culture just seemed to seep out of Athens and into the world around it. Greek art, Greek drama, Greek politics, architecture, democracy. 
I don't know how much you remember about world history and geography class from high school. If you're like me, you probably slept through most of those classes. But Athens was an amazing place filled with some of the most incredible artistic beauty known to man. And so you can kind of imagine the Apostle Paul arriving there, maybe on the harbor, and he's looking in at the city, taking in the sights. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. In Paul's day, in the ancient world, there were two major types of civilizations living together. One, you had the Gentiles. They were a result of human philosophy, and then you had the Jews. They were a result of divine revelation. And of course, the contrast between the two couldn't have been more different. Athens was the very center of the best and brightest that humanity had to offer. Human philosophy is what guided them. Human wisdom guided these nations. And it produced all kinds of idolatry and immorality, the worst of sin and depravity that you can imagine. While Jerusalem was the very center of God's chosen people, they had divine revelation, they had the Scripture, the Law and the Prophets, the priesthood. And as Paul walked around the city of Athens, he couldn't get past the prevalence of idolatry. I've heard it said that during this particular time, it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man which kind of just gives you a glimpse into where their priorities are at. There are so many idols and temples and pagan altars in Athens that there are more of them than there were people. Gods like Zeus and Hades, Athena, Ares, the god of war. You see, pagans believe in a multiplicity of God. They call it polytheism. That's a lot of gods, little g's. I think it would have been incredible if we could transport ourselves through time and space and see the ancient city of Athens the beauty, the magnificence. From the harbor, you would be able to look into Athens and see the Acropolis in the distance. You can see the Parthenon gleaming up on the hill, the Odeon Theater. There was great art there in Athens. The Agora. It was a place where people would come and go, worshiping idols, going to the temples, working and living. And then you have the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. It was the center of philosophical and political discussion. It would be truly amazing to see all that mankind had been able to build there. But you see, when Paul looked at Athens, he didn't look at Athens like a sightseer. He looked at it as a fisher of men. And what he saw bothered him. He didn't look at these statues and go, wow, that's cool. Look at these buildings, these temples, that's so cool. Paul looked at him and he said, those statues are shame. And those temples are shame. You guys know, don't you, that Idolatry is alive and well in our world today. Now, we may not walk around downtown Dallas and see statues and temples to some pagan deity and people bowing down and worshiping those statues. But let's be honest, folks, you don't, really don't have to go that far to find idolatry, do you? And sadly, I think we have a pandemic in today's world of idolatry. The worship of self, the worship of social justice, the worship of celebrities and politicians. How about the worship of government? Today we may not see the temples built to some pagan deity, the deity of the sun, the deity of the moon, but people still have their idols. You know, if you're like me, you've got your phone in your face 24-7, right? If you're not careful, it can become idolatry. Many bow the knee and worship a government that thinks it can solve all your problems, looking for them to, for solutions instead of your Creator. Folks, the question stands today, whom do you serve? 
Who do you serve? You know, when we see these sort of things out in the world, does it grieve us? When we walk around and live in the world today, do we recognize the failure in other religious systems? Or the failure of the world to satisfy the heart of man? These worldly systems can't provide joy, true biblical joy. They certainly can't take away sin. And when Paul saw these false religious systems, his heart was stirred and he was provoked because he saw a city that had been wholly given over to idols. You know, he likely watched multitudes of people coming and going to these idol temples and places of worship. Greek culture everywhere, immorality and impropriety everywhere. Does that grieve us? Does our heart break for the world today, for our society today? You know, Paul's heart was broken and his spirit was stirred because he knew that these people did not know the one true and living God. Something had to be done. And so as his custom was, he first went into the synagogue of the Jews, but he also went into the marketplace. We get the impression that Paul really, he would preach wherever someone was there willing to listen. And through his persistence, he finally catches the attention of some of the philosophers there in the marketplace. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This is Mars Hill that we're talking about now. It's an outcropping of rock where you can look over the marketplace below you. You can look over the high-raised hill, the Acropolis of Athens, and the temples are on it. According to Greek mythology, this hill is the place where the Greek god of war, Ares, stood trial before the other gods for killing the son of Poseidon. And so these philosophers grabbed Paul and they bring him up onto Mars Hill. Verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. You know, the people living in Athens, they prided themselves in new ideas and concepts, new philosophies and theologies. It sounds a lot like a college campus, doesn't it? What we we need to understand is that by walking up onto Mars Hill and into the Areopagus and preaching the gospel there, Paul's actually confronting the political culture of that day. This was a place where the leading politicians, the leading thinkers, would get together and talk about life and the meaning of life. They would adjudicate laws and have political discussions. It was all there. They created this as kind of like a governing body for all these new ideas to govern morality and religious thought, probably to try to keep things from spinning out of control. But now this is where Paul is being invited to speak. It was the center of their pagan political world, and Paul was right there in the middle of it from the synagogue to the marketplace, and now he goes before their greatest philosophers that they had to offer. Now there's two groups of philosophers mentioned here. You have the Epicureans and the Stoics. In short, the Epicureans believed in randomness. They had their pantheon of gods and goddesses, sure, but they didn't believe that those gods really had anything to do with the real world. They believed life on earth came about as a random collision of particles. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? And because of that randomness, when you die, nothing happens after death. There is no afterlife. Their chief goal in life was to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. They wanted to have a lot of good times and a lot of pleasure because when they died, they were done. 
That was the Epicureans in a nutshell. Then you had the Stoic philosophers. They were a bit different. The Stoics believed that everything in nature, everything around you, the trees, the grass, everything is God. Mother Nature, Mother Earth. Now like their name might suggest, they were Stoic. They were reserved. When joys came up, they didn't rejoice. And when sorrows came along, they just ignored it. Their aim was self-discipline. The Stoics believed that they needed to endure all things, while the Epicureans believed that they needed to enjoy all things. Can you imagine being invited into the council of maybe, maybe the greatest minds today? Maybe the greatest professors at Harvard want you to come into one of their lecture halls and preach the gospel to them. It would be pretty intimidating, wouldn't it? It's interesting how Paul starts off his discourse to them, though. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, I love this approach here. He's polite. This is a nice way, a polite way of saying, Hey, I, I noticed you guys have a lot of temples and that you worship a lot of false gods and goddesses. But you notice Paul didn't go in there and say, Hey, I noticed you guys are a bunch of sinners, a bunch of no good rotten sinners. That's not what Paul did. He said, I know... You know, since I've been in your town, I've noticed that you guys are very devout. Y'all are devout people, very religious, very serious about your religion. How interesting is that? Is that that's how Paul begins his sermon to them. He puts forth kindness and he speaks the truth in love. And we should study this strategy as Christians. Verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Friends, these Gentiles in Athens, they erected idols to every god that they knew about. All the known gods had altars in their city. And you know, one of the problems with being a pagan is that there's always the chance that you might miss out on one of these 30,000 gods. And you certainly wouldn't want to miss one. These pagan gods can be quite needy and ill-tempered. And so in their fear of the gods, they actually built an altar there on Mars Hill to the unknown god, just to, you know, cover their bases. And so really, this shows their devotion to that idol worship, to the extreme desire that they had to render due worship to all the gods, both known and unknown. So after laying this foundation, Paul then points to this altar of inscription to the unknown god. He begins to excite their curiosity by telling them, hey, I've come to make you aware of this God, this unknown God that you've made an altar to. I want to tell you about Him. Let me introduce Him to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he, made, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. It's a lot of information that he just went through. Paul tells them here that God is the Creator. And that's verse 24 in summary. He made the world and everything in it. But you see, unlike the God of heaven, who is everywhere, these idols, they're confined to the temples. But he tells them that your unknown God, He made the world. And being the Lord of heaven and earth, God doesn't live in temples made by man, 
nor does He require your service to live. He doesn't need you to make sacrifices. He isn't dependent on your church attendance and your giving. Understand, those in the audience that day, they were in the habit of visiting these idol temples on a regular basis. And they would take things like meat offerings and drink offerings. In their superstition, they believed that these gods were hungry and thirsty and they wanted to please them. But the unknown God, He's not dependent upon man, but rather man is dependent upon Him. And he says, the God I'm telling you about, He gives life to all the people who live. He gives breath to everyone that believes. But the unknown God, once again, He's not dependent upon man. See, the fact is, we are utterly dependent on Him for everything we have, while He Himself needs nothing. The unknown God is the sustainer of all life. And that's verse 25 in a nutshell. And then in verse 26, we find out that this God is the ruler of all things. He tells them, this God that you claim not to know has set everything in His creation in order. From one man, He's brought about every nation on the earth. And in fact, He's determined these nations ahead of time. He's already appointed when these nations will rule. And in fact, He's already chosen the boundaries of these nations' borders. You know, If you remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel there predicts the rise of Greece and the rise of Medo-Persia and the rise of Rome. And you can us looking at it today, we can just see God's providential hand in all these things. The one true and living God, He has such power, such foreknowledge, He has such a great ability to work things out that He determines the period of time that these nations will exist. And He even appoints the boundaries that they will inhabit. It's incredible what He has done, this unknown God. So in summary, verse 24, God is the Creator. Verse 25, God is the Sustainer of all life. In verse 26, God is the Ruler of all things. Next, He tells them the purpose of God in doing these things. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. I'm going to read verse 27 again. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even if some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. It's interesting. He's using secular sources here for a secular audience. He's reaching them on their level, quoting to them their own poets. And dearly beloved, what we must understand is that God expects man to seek Him. He has shown us in His creation the evidence of His existence. He is the sustainer of all life and in His providential care, supplying life and breath and everything we need so that man will seek after Him and find Him. By looking at the creation, all men can know that there is a God who created all things. And He assumes that we should know this. A similar message is repeated in Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. What's David saying here? David is saying that every day creation speaks to us. That day to day uttereth speech. That night unto night uttereth knowledge. Friends, no matter where you and I are on the earth, every passing day, every coming night, God is revealed to us in His creation. His creation speaks to us. And now Paul is going to bring up the omnipresence of God to their mind. We sang that song this morning. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. I want to tell you now 
Their idol gods that they had were confined to the temple where they dwell. But this God that I'm telling you about, the unknown God is everywhere at all times. He's all around us. He is omnipresent. And then Paul points out that their poets have already recognized this. He says, you guys already know this. And this God is not very far from any of us. And that in Him we live and move and we have our very being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We straight to the point here. Being God's offspring, we shouldn't think of God as some marble statue, some stone, some steel that has been shaped and formed into some image. Because after all, how could they accept these images as gods and still consider themselves the offspring of a god? Did they spring forth from some image made out of marble? And see, that's what he's wanting them to see here. Your God's not a marble statue. Your God's not some graven image because an inanimate object can't create offspring. He's pointing out the absurdity of their man-made religion. And now Paul is about to bring his argument to a close by bringing everything back around to Jesus. Verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He he has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He says this time of ignorance, this ignorance in which you've built all these temples, this ignorance in which you've built this whole system of worship, God used to wink at that. He overlooked you doing all these activities for a time. Just so you understand what the point is here, Acts chapter 14, verse 16. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He's telling them that, you know, there was a time when God winked at your ignorance. He overlooked these temples. He overlooked your evil deeds and your worship of false gods. But now, He commands all men everywhere to repent. Because He's appointed a day in which He is going to judge the world in righteousness. And the man who he is going to, who's going to be the judge on that day is the same man that the unknown God has raised from the dead. And so now he mentions Jesus for the first time. He shows them, hey guys, you have obligations to this unknown God. Now that you know something about Him and who He is, He demands that you shape up your lives and that you get with the program. He wants you to repent. He wants you to practice purity and holiness and live uprightly. And He's appointed a day in which He is going to judge the world in righteousness in true justice. Now with that statement, they cut him off right there. They don't want to hear anymore. Verse 32. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Arapagate, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. The idea of the resurrection of the dead here at Athens was not going to be accepted by these supposed philosophers and open-minded thinkers because they've already concluded that death is just an eternal sleep. They did not believe in an afterlife. This is what their man-made religion has gotten them. And Paul and no one else is going to change their minds. I want to ask you today, where has our man-made religion gotten us? Make no mistake, folks, people in America today are extremely religious. But sadly, many, for many, the religion doesn't resemble anything that God's Word directs us to. 
You see, the worship of self is alive and well in our culture today. We can't help ourselves. Whether it's Facebook or Twitter, Xbox or PlayStation, Netflix or Hulu, alcohol or drugs, immorality or idol worship, we are focused on pleasing ourselves. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Folks, we've got to get out of this mindset, out of this worship of ourselves. Another religion that many are caught up in today is the worship of government. And I get it. We're all guilty of this in some way. I mean, my goodness, we just went through a global pandemic. People are scared. But folks, I pay way too much attention to the world of politics. I do. I spend way too much of my energy listening to podcasts and political talking heads. I'm the worst about it. But we need to recognize this morning, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, Republican, Libertarian, Democrat, Donald Trump and Joe Biden and any politician is not going to save us. They're not going to fix all of our problems. But the truth is, politicians and laws, having more money in our pockets, the economy, fixing our culture as a nation, those are not the solutions. You know what the solution is? Jesus Christ is the solution. And that's why we go around sharing the gospel with people. That's why we go around telling people about Jesus, getting them to believe and then baptizing them in water. Jesus said in Mark 16, 15 and 16, and He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You know, some that day, as Paul preached on Mars Hill, they followed after him. Some found the solution we're talking about. Have you found the solution today? As Paul preached, he was completely surrounded by a Greek and pagan culture. A culture that had hardened their hearts and corrupted their souls. We see the same thing in the world today and in the United States. We see it in vast parts of the world. We see the horrible effects of all the isms that contaminate the minds of men. Radical movements that, you know, those who worship the earth, those who worship the flesh. But the important question I think that we need to ask ourselves and that we need to ask people that we're ministering to, is there a God or is there no God? Is there intelligent design in the creation? Can we see that? Is there a God that intervenes in our world today? Or is everything random? Is everything just a product of time and space? Is humanity just a cosmic accident? If there's no God, then you define right or wrong. If there's no God, the culture defines right or wrong. And let's be honest, if there's no God, the powerful elites define what is right and wrong. If that's the case, then right or wrong is totally relative. Hitler and his henchmen, the terrorists, the pedophile, they're just living their truth. They're just living their best life, folks. But you see, the atheists, they can't fully embrace that worldview. They can't go all in on this ideology because objectively, they can see the difference between right and wrong and good and bad. Hitler was wrong. Slavery is wrong. Murder is wrong. As His offspring, God has written that sort of thing on our hearts. So if there is an objective standard of morality and good and evil, then there must be a Creator who instituted that standard, the unknown God. He has authority in our life. He has authority over what is right and wrong. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And that light from the empty tomb has illuminated the development of Western culture and has been central to the development of laws and governments that are forced to recognize the absolutely transcendent value of human life. Because if we recognize that we are made by Him and in His image, then human life is absolutely valuable. That's the foundation of everything that we've ever argued, folks. That's why Christians went around for thousands of years building hospitals, building colleges, helping the poor, because human life is valuable. That means there is purpose. That means there is order. That means that when we look to the future, instead of the secular world that looks to the future and sees chaos and darkness, randomness and death, we don't look to the future like that. Because the one who created us also gave his life for us. Jesus proved it. You want proof of God's love? Always look to the cross and the empty tomb. There's the proof of your worth. There's the proof of God's love for you. He sent his son to die on the cross because he loves you. And that's what we believe as Christians. We believe that God, the one and only God, who made all things and holds all things together, entered into His creation by way of His only Son, gave His life, died, and rose again. And now He's enthroned in heaven above. That is our faith, Christians. And now Christ has sent us with a message of hope and salvation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. We need to understand this morning that for the world, that sounds crazy. They have such a hard time understanding the concept of faith. You know, for many people, faith simply means gusto. For many people, faith means blindness. It means irrationality, but not for the follower of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Folks, if Jesus Christ has not been risen from the dead, we're wasting our time this morning. But Paul points out, faith in Christ is not a blind leap. Rather, faith in Christ takes seriously the evidence that we have at our disposal. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Folks, you weren't there 2,000 years ago to follow after Christ. You weren't. You weren't there to see Him crucified. You weren't there to see Him resurrected. But what you do have is you have the evidence of eyewitness accounts. You have historical record. You have the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. You have the evidence of uh, intelligent design in the creation. More evidence than can fill all the books and all of our libraries. You see, we all have faith, folks. Each one of us has faith every day, especially when you get on 635. You got faith. (laughs) You got faith whenever you get on a roller coaster at Six Flags. You do. Every night when you go to sleep, You have faith that you're going to be safe and protected. Hopefully, that faith is not blind. Hopefully, that faith has a strong foundation. The question is, what is the evidence that your faith is reliable? You see, the legitimacy of faith has nothing to do with intensity or sincerity. Faith has to be based on evidence. And as Christians, we have a basis of great amounts of evidence for defining true authority. Evidence in which the secular world does not have for establishing their stance on morality. And this gives us a foundation for the message that we can present to the world, that our children and our grandchildren can present to the world. That we don't have to keep remaking Christianity because it's imperfect and that because it's man-made. No. 
Christianity is divine. It's true. And it will remain true because the Creator made His creation that way. There on Mars Hill that day, many heard the prophetic words of Paul, but only a few followed after. Only a few were intrigued and wanted to hear more. So some rejected, some received, and some thought about it. What is your response today, folks? Will you reject the God that gives you your life and breath? Or will you obey that gospel message? Will you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and repent of your sins, confess Jesus as your Savior, and be buried with Him in the act of baptism and raised to walk in newness of life? Maybe this morning you are intrigued, but folks, maybe you're not fully on board yet. I get it. But maybe you're interested in hearing more. I'd encourage you, come talk with us after church. Let's get together and make sure your questions get answered. Let's open up the Bible and find out what exactly the Bible teaches. Maybe this morning you're dealing with a lot of stuff in your life. You know, I realize around the holidays and this time of year, life gets pretty tough. People have a lot going on. You may be carrying a lot around with you. You might have a lot of things on your shoulders. It doesn't have to be that way. That's why God gave us the church, so that we can stand together and support each other and love one another. And we'd love to pray with you no matter what's going on in your life today. Or maybe you're ready to take that next step and die with Christ in the act of baptism. In either case, we're ready to assist you. If there be one of either case, we ask that you come down to the front, take a seat on this front pew as we stand and as we sing.